0: Did God make the devil? There are plenty of people in the world who are questioning God, questioning his existence, questioning his character. What kind of God is this if this is the kind of world that he has? If there is evil, if there is wickedness, if there is such a thing as Satan or the devil, why in the world would a good God allow him to be, and why would he allow him to continue to be? It's an important question, and we find that at the heart of the book of Revelation. But before we get into a study of God's Word, we always need to begin with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who creates and then communicates with your creatures. You could have just left us to spin out there in space on our own, but you wanted a personal relationship, and so you gave us your Word. So now, Lord, tonight we ask that that the same God who sent his Holy Spirit to inspire the writing of Scripture would now inspire our understanding of it. Make it clear and more than just information, Lord, begin a transformation in our lives to be more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just give you a brief outline of the book of Revelation. This won't take long, but the book of Revelation is basically built in two halves. How many halves? There can only be two halves, of course. Right? Two halves. The first, very first chapter and the very last chapter correspond with each other pretty well, as we saw the other evening. It opens with the promise of Jesus coming, it ends with the promise of Jesus coming. It starts with a blessing on those who would read and obey, and it closes with a blessing on those who would read and obey. And so it has these beautiful mirror-like bookends to the book of Revelation. Now, the first half, in fact, take out your Bibles here to the very first page of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. As John is instructed to write, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1. Jesus himself comes down to the Apostle John, now the prophet John, or John the Revelator, as he's often known. But he says here what it was in- like to encounter Jesus Christ. We're in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to go to verse 17. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be what? Afraid. I am the first and the last. And just in case you're not sure who that is, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is clearly Jesus Christ who has those accolades, yes? Now, he says, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now watch carefully what he tells him to write down, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are and which will take place when? After this. So notice he says, I've shown you things And those things include things that are present tense for you now, John, things that are, but also things that will take place after this, the future. So he communicates to John, at that time, the present going into the future. And of course, the great hope of the book of Revelation culminates with the coming of Jesus in the clouds of glory, where he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Surely, I am coming quickly, the book ends with. So basically, the book opens with Jesus telling John, I'm going to tell you things that are now and things that are to come. And the great culmination is the second coming of Jesus at the very end. Now, structurally, the book of Revelation has those two halves. In the beginning, it has the introductory scenes, and then it has the covering of 2,000 years of history over several times repeated. By What I mean by that is John, for instance, saw the It was shown the seven churches, okay, each one representing a different phase of Christian history throughout the time after Christ came and before he returns again. That same span of history repeated the seven churches. Then you see seven seals. Then you see seven trumpets, each one layering, repeating that same history from the time of John until the coming of Jesus. The first half of the book of Revelation covers those repeating series of sevens the church's history from the time of John until the coming of Jesus, which, of course, John lived during the first coming of Jesus, so you could just basically say from the first coming of Jesus till the second coming of Jesus. The second half of the book of Revelation zooms in on the very last events leading up to the coming of Jesus. So the first half is a broad, sweeping history of 2,000 years. The last half gives details about the final events before Jesus comes. But right in the middle, right in the heart, the very center of the book of Revelation, is this beautiful background story as to why there's even a problem at all. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. And that's what I'm going to direct your attention to tonight and tomorrow night as well. Tonight's message, entitled, Did God Make the Devil? finds its roots in Revelation chapter 12, right in the center of the book. And we're going to go to verse 7. There's only a few places in Scripture, and we're going to see all of them tonight, or at least most of them tonight, where the Bible pulls back the curtain on sacred history and shows us the very beginning of all the problems that Jesus came to fix. And what we see in Revelation chapter 12, we start with verse 7, it describes a war in heaven. Watch this, chapter 12, verse 7, the book of Revelation. And war broke out, say it with me, where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And remember, the book of Revelation has a lot of imagery. Okay? And the dragon and his angels fought. By the way, if the idea of a dragon disturbs you, it tells us in just a moment who that dragon is. So just keep reading. Okay? But it says they did not prevail, that is the dragon and his angels, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was What? Cast out. Now, does it say the great dragon was blotted out of existence? No. He was merely cast out or removed from his position in heaven. Now, you might be thinking, as many people would, well, if you had a chance to kill Satan right then and there, why? Well, that's the burden of our message tonight. What are we seeing and why are we seeing it? But we go back now, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. And who is that great dragon? That serpent of old called whom? The devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Apparently, behind all of the struggle of good and evil that we see in this world and the entire mission of Jesus Christ, at all, is this backdrop of a war in heaven where the dragon or the devil and Satan was fighting against Michael and his angels. The dragon and his angels lost, but they were, instead of being blotted out of existence, were cast out and cast down to the earth. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, he gave a parable specifically talking about this experience. So let's go to the Gospel of Matthew and see what we find Jesus himself explaining about this war in heaven and the presence of evil in our world. Why would he do what he did? Why not just destroy Satan the moment he was found out? Matthew chapter 13, we're going to begin with verse 24. Again, for those of you if you are just joining us, you see that there are the little page numbers by each passage of Scripture referenced. That's for the Pew Bible that corresponds with that. Matthew, the first gospel, chapter 13, starting with verse 24. Now, just to give you a little background, Matthew chapter 13 is full of parables, lots of parables in Matthew 13, but apparently this one parable really got the disciples' attention, and we'll see why in just a minute. It starts in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept his, what's that word? enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, you don't have to have this drawn out for you too much here, but there's a man. He owns a field, and who was the one who actually put in the seeds of wheat? Is the, no, no, no. The wheat was given by the owner of the field, right? He didn't have his servants do it. He did it himself. But when nighttime came, when everyone went to bed, when it was dark out, his enemy crept in and planted other seeds, tares, or weeds, among the wheat. Now watch what happens. But, verse 26, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow what? good seed in your field. Now, wait a minute. You're the one who owns the field. You're the one who planted the seeds, and you're the one who said it was good. But now we've come to work for you, and we notice that your field that you planted is full of bad and good. Where did the bad come from? Do you see the question they're asking? Now, notice what, what the owner says now. Again, they said, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. Now, this is of crucial importance. We don't have to have a magic decoder ring. Jesus is talking about God sowing the good seed of this world, and everything started in mint condition. Yet now we look around the world, we see that it's full of good and evil. There's wickedness all abounding. The field is full of weeds. And the servants are saying, how is this possible? If you're such a good God, how did your field turn out so bad? And notice what God doesn't say. He does not say, yeah, my bad. I'm sorry. No. He says, I didn't do it. He says, an enemy has done this. Notice there's an enemy. There's a battle here, right? Now, we go back now. Again, verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? The minute you spot the bad, let's eliminate it right on the spot. And notice the answer. But he said what? No. Now, why would a farmer allow weeds to continue to grow in his field when he intended to only plant wheat? It's a good question, isn't it? Look at the answer he gives. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Please get this, folks. It's God's concern for the wheat that drives him to allow the tares to continue for a while. Now, let that thought sink in. And we're going to develop it over time tonight. But watch this again. No, he said, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until when? Is there a day when the Lord is going to clean out his field? Yes, it's called the harvest. But he doesn't want to do it too early because you might harm the wheat in your efforts to get rid of the tares. He said, now that it's started, let's let the process go out. And then at the harvest, I will say to the reapers, right? These are his servants who clean out his field. These are the ones asking the questions. First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat, where? Into my barn. There's going to be a harvest, and at one stroke you're going to gather all the tares, the wicked, and put them together, and their destiny is to be burned, right? But all the wheat will be immediately be gathered into the barn. One pile goes for the burn, the other pile goes for the barn. And that's the end of the parable. Next verse, and another parable he put forth to them. And the disciples were like, wait a minute. (laughs) You just said some really deep things right there. How do we know they thought that? Well, just keep reading. Watch what happens. Go down to verse 36. Inside the same chapter, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us, and notice they don't say all the parables you told today. They said that one. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Is it possible they had the same type of questions that the servants of the owner in the parable had? Hey, that's a good question. If you are a good God, why are there bad things? Where hmm, Are you responsible for evil? And notice what Jesus does. He decodes the whole thing for them step by step. Verse 37. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is whom? The Son of Man, which is constantly Christ's moniker for himself. Okay? He said, I, in that parable, am the guy who sowed the field. By the way, what is the field? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 38. The field is what? The world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, or the righteous, yes, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is whom? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are whom? Angels. By the way, I'm going to to share something that's right here in this passage, but when I noticed it for the first time, it kind of flipped my lid. In the parable, Jesus is the owner of the field, and in his field he sowed good seed, yes? If you were to go back to the Genesis account of creation, which, by the way, the Gospel of John, all the New Testament writers all affirm very clearly that it was Jesus, the Son of God, who created our world. And in the beginning, when it says God created... Step by step, it goes day by day. And at the end of each day, the Lord God looked, and behold, it was good. And every day, good, good, until we get to the sixth day, and he says, everything that he made was very good. There was no taint of sin, no problem at all, no evil, no wickedness, not one tear in his field. Now, in the parable, the plants, whether they're wheat or their tares, represent the people here. The character of the people, they're either righteous or they're wicked, holy or unholy. Is that clear? So let me ask you a question. Is it people who are asking God questions about the existence of evil? In the parable, are the plants the ones asking the questions? No. It's the servants, the reapers, the ones responsible for plucking out the tares. They're the ones asking the questions. And according to Jesus, who do they represent? The angels. Now think about that. Is it possible, friends, that even angels have questions for God about the existence of evil? If you're such a good God, why did all this happen? Why was there a war in our field in heaven? Why did you allow it to go down here? If you planted good seed, how did it get out? What, what's going on? The reapers are the angels, and they're the ones asking the questions. It's a fascinating story. By the way, right here in your study guide, you had the little fill-in-the-blanks. I don't know if you've been filling them all along, but the sower is the Son of Man, or just Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the righteous. The tares are the wicked. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. We get that list exactly from Jesus' own mouth. He said, this is what everything means. Now, who is this enemy? How did he become this guy? Where did this all start? Again, we read about in the book of Revelation, the war in heaven, but there are other places in scripture that talk about this beginning of evil. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, just before the book of Jeremiah, to the right of the book of Psalms by several books, Isaiah chapter 14 Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12. Here, the prophet is thinking about the very same themes. How is it possible that such a great God has this evil in his world? And he, re- and he writes these words. How you are fallen from where? Heaven. So whatever he's about to address is a being who has fallen from heaven. Now, does that correspond with what we read in Revelation chapter 12? That there was a war in heaven and someone was cast out? Yes. How you were fallen from heaven, oh whom? Lucifer. Now, we probably connect the name Lucifer with horrid, evil, awful things now. But originally, that wasn't God's design for him. Lucifer means the light bearer. In fact, it goes on to describe him in other passages of scripture that we're going to go to. But notice this. He says, How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And why was he cut down? Why was he cast out? Verse 13. "For, For this reason, you said, And where's this dialogue happening? In your hearts, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, is he saying these things out loud? No. According to scripture, he said, for you have said things in your heart. Now, let me ask you a logical question. Is it possible for you to be thinking one thing and expressing a different thing? (laughs) Some of you might be doing it right now, even, you know. Like, inside you might be, but on the outside it's like, good morning, how are you? Is it possible that sometimes our insides and our outsides don't harmonize or correspond, yeah? According to this, he was Lucifer the light bearer, but inside he was, I will be like the most high. But what happens to him? The text continues. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Some versions say the grave. You will be ended. You will be dead. But notice it's you will be. You shall be. Not immediately. First you're going to be cast out before you're blotted out. And I think we get a hint as to why in the very next verse. Those who see you will gaze at you. What's it mean to gaze at someone? To stare, to look, to peer at them, to leer at them, just kind of really focus in on them, right? Those who see you will gaze at you and do what? Consider you. What's another word for consider? Think about. Mull it over. Process it. Really, really cogitate on this thing. They're going to look at you and they're going to think about what you've done. Consider you saying, is this the man? Like When it's all said and done, you used to be Lucifer, now you're in the grave. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? As if to say, you used to be, but now you're, how you have fallen. Let me pause and ask you a question. Can God see in you? Yes. Can I see in you? No. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I want you to only show me what you want to show me. I don't want to see what's going on in there. But if God were to look at a crowd, could he see through you? I can only see to you, right? But God can see through. Keep that in mind as we go to our next passage. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. To the right now, and still in the Old Testament, just before our book of Daniel, Ezekiel, chapter 28. We're identifying the enemy. Where did all this evil come from? What actually happened? What we know so far is he was Lucifer. He fell from heaven. And in his heart, he was having this dialogue of boastful Self-aggrandizement, I will be like God, yet you shall be brought down. But the reason it shall be is so that ghosts can gaze at you and think about you. Now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to start with verse 14. Again, describing Lucifer, he says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. A cherub is, a, is another term for an angel, yes? I established you. Some versions even say, for so I ordained you. He was set apart for a specific task. He was the covering cherub right next to the throne of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Now carefully watch verse 15. You were what? Perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now we got to break that down just a little bit. You were perfect. Does that say that he is currently perfect? No. But was he always imperfect? No. He started off in what condition? Perfect. You were perfect from the day you were what? Is this enemy a created being? Yes. It's not a member of the Godhead who is defected against himself, right? This is a created being, a highly exalted Lucifer, the light bearer, covering cherub that God had set up, but apparently started to say in his heart, I want to be like the Most High. Again, we go back to verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity, and another word for iniquity is sin, wickedness, evil, right, was found where? Where? Think about it again. Is there any other created being who can see inside of another created being? No. Only the creator can see into the creation. Yes? So who found the iniquity in him? God found it. Now think about this. It's a powerful thought, but we'll just keep reading. We'll come back to this analogy, but keep going here. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence, where? Within. Notice it's all internal. You became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I, what? Cast you as a profane thing out of where? The mountain of God. Is this referring to the same casting out that we saw in the book of Revelation? Absolutely. There was war. You were cast out. Not plotted out. Just cast out. And again, the burden of my question is, where did evil come from? And when you first saw it, why didn't you end it? Keep reading. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, I destroyed you a covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stone. That means I didn't destroy you altogether. You were just fired from your job. You were cast out. Notice again, verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Was this being splendorous, gorgeous, and beautiful? Yes. He was perfect in every way. But it went to his head. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And watch this language now. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. Why? That they might, what? Gaze at you. Have we seen that phrase before? That they might gaze at you? Yes. When the same story is told by the prophet Isaiah, the same reason is given. That they might gaze at you. think about why this might be. Sanctified imagination, but go with me into the courts of heaven. Okay. Let's say that there's God in his position on the throne and all of his created beings come together to worship and praise his name. Lucifer, is the right-hand man, right? He's the exalted, established, covering cherub. He's beautiful. If you go back and read the text, it talks about his pipes and his timbrels. He's the song leader. He He's the focal point of all the worship, the worship leader in heaven, if you will, the ador- ordained minister in the courts of God. And all the created beings are gathered before the throne of God, and they're all singing praises to his name. Praise God from whom all... Bla-. You know, it's just and it's beautiful, all the harmonies. and When the eye of God sweeps the crowd... Remember, it doesn't just see to the people, it sees through them, yes? And everyone on the outside is, praise God, they're happy and joyful. And on the inside, they're just as pure as driven snow. Clear as glass, just transparent, harmonious, love, just perfection. All across the congregation. Until he gets to Lucifer. And of course, on the outside, he's all, praise God. But according to Scripture, on the inside, I should be there. I don't know why I have to be down here with him. I'm just as, in fact, I'm probably better in fact, I look at, I should be there. And God sees. Iniquity was found in him. And, of course, we all probably know the Scripture well enough to know that the wages of sin is what? Death. Imagine if you will. God stops the music. Everybody slow down, slow down. Lucifer, could you step forward, please? Remember on the outside, oh, yes, what can I get for you? Are you everything okay? You want another song? Do you want to sing louder? Let's do it louder. He's like, "Shh, shh, stop. Just stop. I've seen what's in your heart. And as much as it pains me, the wages of sin is death. And for the good of the universe, I need to do what I now do. And the lifeless body the covering cherub falls to the ground. Let me ask you a question. Do the other angels understand what just happened? No. Now, are they loyal to God? Yes. Yes. Do you think they have some questions for God? Think about the position there and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, slow, oh what what whoa whoa, whoa. hey 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 hang on." And imagine if God after that happens says, "All right, let's go back to singing praise God from." I'm sure they're like, "You know, I mean, we're with you, but mm, what what just happened?" And then God turns to them and says, don't worry, trust me. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I love you and, and I do trust you, but we don't understand. Think back to the parable, of Matthew chapter 13. Who were the ones asking the question? the angels and what does the reason that is given in scripture for satan the devil being cast out instead of being blotted out of existence not so that god could see him remember iniquity was found within only god can see the heart for you have said in your heart there was violence within all of that rage and pent-up anger god saw it he knew exactly who it was later jesus would come down and say he's been a, a liar and a murderer ever from the beginning Of course, God saw it. But the other people had only seen the outside. So God says in his word, I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So they could consider you. Please go to the fill in the blank at the bottom of the first page. Lucifer according to Scripture, was a perfect being who chose to rebel. Please carefully get that down. Lucifer was a perfect being. Again, these are all just the words of Scripture, a perfect being. Lucifer was a perfect being who chose to rebel. So let me ask you the question. Did God create the devil? No. He created Lucifer with a freedom to choose, and Lucifer chose to rebel. Is there a difference? Massive difference. So when Christ gets the parable in Matthew chapter 13, and the angel's asking the question, how then does it have tears? He doesn't say, yeah, I'm sorry. He said, I didn't do it. (laughs) An enemy has done this. Let's flip over the page. Again, we've covered this already, but why was Lucifer merely cast out of heaven instead of being blotted out of existence? So that they, those who knew him, the onlooking universe could see on the outside what God had seen on the inside all along. Let's go to our fill in the blank. Lucifer was cast out of heaven so others could gaze at him. Or if you want to stare at him, look at him, whatever you want to call it, they needed an opportunity to see for themselves. And consider him. So again, those are the words of Scripture. Lucifer was cast out of heaven so others could gaze at him and consider him. Thus we can go back to Revelation chapter 12 in our minds when it talks about a war in heaven. Do you think it was a war of atom bombs and grenades and bloody angel bodies strewn across the streets of gold? No. No. In fact, the word for war, it's an interesting thing, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and there was war in heaven, is the word polemos, P O L E M O S. Polemos, which is where we get our English word polemic. I know that's not a word we use every day, or if you do use it every day, you're probably a professor somewhere, okay? But the word polemic is an argument, a counter argument to an established premise right? So you can imagine God has his government, his way, but Satan says, no, I should be like the most high, and he is advocating a different principle. It's not a war of weapons. It's a war of words. It's a war of ideas. It's a battle for the loyalties and the sympathies of the onlooking universe. The war in heaven was not a war of weapons, but a war of words. Now, It says that he was cast down to the earth. How do we get involved with this? By the way, isn't it interesting that the problem that we have on earth apparently didn't start here on earth? We're getting the residual problem that began up in heaven. We'll indicate this very clearly from Scripture as we go along, but he was cast to the earth according to Scripture, and his angels were cast out with him. But when God made this earth, it was in what condition? Perfect. Very good. There was no sin at all. Well, at least for the first two pages of the Bible. (laughs) But, of course, things change. Let's go back now to Genesis chapter 1 and see how the ideas that Satan was agitating in heaven, Lucifer then, came to be part of our world down here. Genesis chapter 1, I believe in your pew Bible, that's page 1. We'll go to verse 27. Speaking of his creation of humanity at the end of that first week of creation. So God created man in what? His own image. Notice he didn't make him with a defect. He didn't make him with any kind of badness or wickedness. He was made in the image of God. Again, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created this planet, but then created humanity in his own image to be the ruler of where he made. Yes, the steward of this planet he created. Does that make sense? He created them, perfect in his own image, male and female, set them up and said, now you have dominion over all that I have made. Man was the original ruler of this world. Is that clear? Now, watch what happens. Genesis chapter 3, just turn to the right, one or two pages at the most, Watch what happens in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Have we seen that word serpent in our study so far tonight? Yes. Revelation chapter 12, if you recall, when it identifies the dragon, it calls him that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. He was cast to the earth. So we saw from heaven's perspective, and now we see it from the earth's perspective. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, had God put a limitation on what they could eat? Yes. Yes. He said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But notice how Satan kind of twists that command. Has God really said you can't eat from any tree? Obviously making a statement so big that it almost demands response. But what's he doing? He's luring her into a conversation. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you what? Die. So God had said, you shall surely die. and the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now look what Satan says, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now pause right there. Which one of the two statements is more appealing on its surface? Dying or not dying? (laughs) Of course. Have you ever noticed that Satan always makes sin appear attractive? Oh, that's not only fun, but it's even good for me. It's not bad at all. It's going to be fine. His methods haven't changed in 6,000 years. friends. You will not surely die. Watch this. For God knows, think about what's implied there, God knows and you don't. Right? There's some stuff he could have told you, but he didn't. He's keeping it from you. There's some secret inside of information I'm here to tell you that he won't ever let you in on. You see what I'm saying? For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be What? What does it imply about her eyes at this moment? That they are closed. He's like, you don't see. But God knows. The day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can determine for yourself what is right or wrong. You don't need some God to tell you the rules and give you laws and obey His commands. You do what you think is right because you will be equal with God. Do you see the same line of reasoning that he had said in his heart? I will ascend by the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He took that same type of thinking and sold it down here. Boy, wouldn't it have been nice if she had said, get thee behind me, Satan. Or honestly, if she hadn't engaged in the conversation to start with, probably the better thing. By the way, when Satan ever tries to talk to you, don't banter, don't play around, don't part. He will win. Your job is to get away and hide in Jesus. right? But she tries to stand on her own. But boy, that last offer was just too appealing. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, By the way, I don't know if you've ever had this picture of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as some, like, rotten, stinking, putrid, toxic mess. Apparently it wasn't that. It was gorgeous. It looked like every other tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. What made this one naughty? It wasn't inherently a bad tree. It was because God said no, and it was a test of loyalty. The tree wasn't inherently lethal, It was just a test to see if you would be loyal. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one what? Wise. She took of its fruit and ate. Notice this stark contrast. We'll be building on this, and the book of Revelation is all about this. There's what Satan makes you see put juxtaposed against what God has said. Do you see the difference? There's what God has said, and then what Satan makes you see. Which are you going to trust? What you see or what God says? Now, that's a rhetorical question for now, but I hope we're thinking on those lines. Am I going to obey the Word of God? Or fall for the alluring temptations of Satan. Romans chapter 6 makes an interesting statement. The Apostle Paul writes here when he urges us to avoid sin, we'll start with verse 15. Notice what he says, emphatically, Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 15. He says, what then, shall we sin, because we're not under the law, but under grace? You've probably heard that sometime in your life, yes? We're not under the law, we're under the grace, so we can do, we can know good and evil for ourselves. What was the Apostle Paul's take on that? Certainly not, exclamation point. And why does he explain it this way? Verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Basic premise is whoever's voice you obey, you are that one's slave. Originally, what was the position that God had entrusted humanity with when it came to this world? They were to have dominion, yes? They were to rule this place. But the woman and the man disobeyed God's law, and by disobeying God, they obeyed Satan, and he became, as Christ himself would later say, the ruler of this world. In fact, go to the book of Luke. This is fascinating to me. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. When Jesus had his encounter in the wilderness, one-on-one spiritual combat with Satan himself, I want to t- draw your attention to verse 5. Verses 5 through 7. Watch this interesting encounter this interesting dialogue between christ and this enemy satan luke chapter 4 and starting with verse 5 then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the what world in a moment of time So you get the picture here. Here's Christ in his humanity. And if you understand this story, he's been 40 days in the wilderness, no earthly support, without food, without drink. He's barely hanging on to life itself. And Lucifer shows up. Ah. All splendid. The Bible talks about how he can come as an angel of light, right? And you can almost imagine. Boy, you know that there was an angel cast out of heaven. And by all appearances, it was... Well, I'm on your side, so if you are the Son of God, tell these stones, right? He tries to work Jesus over the way he had worked over the angels in heaven, the way he worked over Adam and Eve in the garden. Now he comes to Jesus himself and tries to sell his wares, if you will. Jesus, of course, rebuffed every one of them, saying, It is written, but now look at this one in verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority, I will what? Give you and their glory. I'll let you run the place and get all the credit for it. I will give it to you. You can almost imagine, free of charge. Well, almost free. I just want one little thing in return. Therefore, no, no, I'm sorry. Look at his reason why he can give this. By the way, is this a false claim? He claims to have the authority of the whole world to give away as he wishes. Had the original owner of the world, the operator, the ruler, handed over the keys? Yes, he has. By the way, Satan admits as much himself. Look at the text. All this authority has been Uh, delivered. All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be what? I'll give it right back. Don't worry about going to the Garden of Gethsemane with all that weight of sin. Don't worry about going to the Cross of Calvary with those painful nails. Don't worry about, from this moment on, you can be free. I'll give it to you. Just in front of those same onlooking universe, bow down and worship me. No pain, no problems. I'll give it to you. God, got imagine after 40 days in the wilderness, that's a pretty tempting offer. But praise the Lord, Jesus did not sin even once. Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, as we come to the conclusion of tonight's message, I want to take you back to the tiny little book of Nahum. Nahum is a tiny little book in the Old Testament, only three chapters long, and each chapter is very small, only about a page apiece. But I believe that there is something of vital importance recorded In Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is the biggest promise in the Bible. And I know that sounds like a radical claim, especially if you looked at the promise that Jesus is coming again. But this, I believe, is an even bigger promise. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Scripture reads, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a what? Second time. Let's go back to our original thought. When we were discussing the possibility of God destroying Lucifer the moment sin was found in him, If God had killed him, which from our perspective, we say, sure, you should have ended it the moment it reared its ugly head, right? Nip it in the bud. But if he had done that, let me ask you a question. Would it have ended the rebellion? No, it would have killed that particular rebel. But is it possible that he would have died what would be considered by others a martyr's death? fighting for the cause of freedom and that the ideas that he had begun to circulate would actually take root in other angels' hearts? Think about it. If God destroys him too early, right at the moment, even though God is right, other people need to see. Let me illustrate it this way. One evening, a man is... Home alone, his wife is away on a trip and he's kind of excited for a night of just a quiet night at home and he has a nice book that he's going to have, a nice hot drink and he's going to go to the back of his house and a nice little cozy living room chair, turn on one single lamp and just have a quiet evening, reading a book and then hitting the hay. He's looking forward to it, goes in, gets changed, puts all his stuff together, he goes down, sits in his chair, (sighs) he's just reading quietly. Now, from the outside of the house, you can't see in the back room with that one little lamp on. It it looks like it's sealed up shut tight and it's just dark and nobody's home. And the burglar that's walking by says, ka-ching. Oh, this is ripe for the picking. So he goes to the door and he doesn't make a noise like, right? He makes that kind of, and the guy in the chair says, He quickly reaches for his phone, dials 911, turns out the light. And as he's waiting for the answer to pick up, 911, what's your emergency? He hears the guy walking through his house. And he knows his house well enough that even in the dark, he knows pretty much where he is. And he can hear the steps coming closer and closer until he knows he's at the other side of the same room he's in. The guy doesn't know he's home yet. But on the other end of the line, he hears, 911, help. what's your emergency? And the guy flips on the light really quick, yells into the phone, I'm being robbed! (laughs) All of which shocks the burglar. (laughs) Eyes pop out like a cartoon, jaw drops to the floor, (gasps) and for just a moment, he hadn't put on gloves or a mask or anything. He was just breaking in for the picking, right? And so there's the robber's face and the owner's face, bare-eyed, looking at each other. And it's like time stood still, you know? And on the other end of the line, the operator says, well, we have a squad car right in your neighborhood. He'll be by shortly. And outside in the distance, you get a <laughs> and the bird was like, how did everything go wrong so quickly, right? So he runs out the door, Right as the cops are pulling up, and they just open the back door. Well, Welcome, come on in. (laughs) Slam the door. The man is standing like he defended his castle that night. Go on, get out of here. I'm headed to bed. Let me tell you something. The man slept well that night. Got a bad guy off the street, defended his home, headed to bed. The other guy, not such a great night. Had to go through the whole processing. Oh, and it was just go uh, through the. Oh, he's laying in a cell, and it was—he's not comfortable. People aren't nice. It's cold. Oh, it's no good. Next morning, the man in the house wakes up and gets dressed, has a nice hot shower, goes off to work, and he's headed off for another day. While the other guy, the burglar, wakes up groggy and sore and embarrassed and all kinds of things, being led around and cuffs and whatnot, and has to go through the processing again, he has to go stand before the judge and all the different things that have to have his day now planned out. And as he goes through this day, there's the attorneys and the different people and the uh, whatever, all here in the courtroom, and the bailiff, all rise. Of course, he stands up. And right then, the judge walks in. And wouldn't you know it, the judge just happens to be the guy whose house he broke into last night. And for the second time in so many days, their eyes pop out, and time stands still once again. And the poor burglar, you almost feel bad. Like, I have, I'm terrible at this, right? And the judge, oh, Good to see you. How's it going? Good night's sleep? I slept fine. And as he takes his seat, he says, you know what? Even before we take our seats, defense attorney, let me tell you something. You're going to lose. <laughs> Prosecutor, count this one up. You won this case. Jury, you can all go home. I'm ready to render a verdict right now. He slams down the gavel and he says, guilty. Let me ask you a question. Is the judge correct in his assessment of the burglar's guilt? Yes. But then let me ask you this. Is he right to pass sentence immediately? Why not? Because everyone else needs an opportunity to see for themselves what he has seen all along. Does that make sense? This is why, according to Scripture, Lucifer, when he rebelled against the government of God and God saw through him, he didn't end him right away. Because he knew, if I go in and tear this thing up now, it actually won't end the rebellion. It'll actually fan the flames. Once it has started, we need to let it run its course until everyone else can see the difference. Because God's goal is not just ending the rebel. He wants to end rebellion for all time. Thus he says in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? And he comes on to say, He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up, what? A second time. There's not going to be a next time. God's going to take his time, get it right, so that when evil is eliminated, when that harvest comes, there'll never be wickedness again. By the way, 1 John chapter 3 Hopefully our study tonight will shed new light on 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Perhaps a text you're familiar with, but I want you to see it in the light of our study today. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of whom? The devil. For the devil has sinned when? From the beginning. And he's not talking about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He's talking about the beginning of the rebellion itself. And now watch this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of whom? The devil. Friends, it seems quite clear that Jesus came to this earth to finish what had started in heaven. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the devil, the works of the devil, who sinned from the beginning. Let's go to the end of our worksheet now, the last fill in the blanks. God did not create the devil. And He takes absolutely no responsibility for evil's existence. He says, I didn't do it. An enemy has done this. But because only God can see the heart, once sin began, it had to continue, or you can put in there, mature. It had to grow so that every created being in God's universe could see for themselves the difference between good and evil. And as we just saw, once this war between good and evil is finally ended, rebellion against God will never happen again. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.